0: and gain access to patron-only broadcasts and other perks, support us on Patreon at 2 for T. Welcome to The Conversation. Hello, everyone. My guests today are coming to us variously from Mexico City. And um, Ben, you are in New York?
1: Uh, I'm actually in Atlanta, Georgia.
0: Okay. you're You're normally in New York, right? Or... Am I am I completely wrong about that?
1: Uh, so I lived in uh, New Jersey uh, for uh, three and a half years. So I was in the Greater New York commuting area. But I've been in Atlanta, and I, I go back to New York a couple times a year. But you know, I've, I've been in Atlanta since last August.
0: Yeah, I think when I was talking to you last year in New Jersey, and so they're coming to us from Mexico City and Atlanta, and I am coming to you from. Buenos Aires, as usual. Matt McManus is Professor of Politics and International Relations at Tech de Monterrey, and his books include The Rise of Postmodern Conservatism and Making Human Dignity Central to International Human Rights Law. His forthcoming book, Liberalism and Liberal Rights, will be published by um, Paul Grave Macmillan. I think Matt is the most productive person I have ever encountered and my personal theory is that he is a Cylon so if that is later discovered if Matt is ever um, finds himself hearing all across the watchtower on a on, on a dark night um, then you heard it here first I called it first
2: yeah, well let's not theorize too much on that right I need to keep my secret uh, contained at least for a little while I not
0: Right, yes, yes, at least until your mission is complete. Exactly. And Ben Burgess is a philosophy instructor at Georgia State University Perimeter College and the author of Give Them an Argument, Logic for the Left, which we have reviewed for Ario Magazine, and I'll, I'll put a link to that review in the show notes. He's a twice-a-month columnist at Arc Digital Media, regular contributor to Jacobin Magazine, and he has a weekly segment on The Michael Brooks Show called The Debunk. And his forthcoming book, book is called Canceling Comedians While the World Burns, Why We Need a Smarter, Kinder, and More Strategic Left. And both, uh, both um, Matt and Ben Burgess have previously been guests on this podcast. Um, Matt and I talked about the history of conservative thought Um, conservatism from Burke to Ben Shapiro. I'll link to that episode below. And Ben Burgess was a guest with John Rosen, and the three of us talked about free will. And new to this podcast, welcome is Marion Trejo, who is Professor of Politics and International Relations at Tech de Monterey. Her research focuses on the genealogy of fear in politics. And the three of them are co-authors of the forthcoming book, uh, forthcoming with zero books, Myth and Mayhem, a leftist critique of Jordan Peterson. Welcome, guys.
1: Thank you very much for having us. Yeah, thank you. Yes, thank you.
0: My pleasure. So I think what it might be, um, 12 rules for life might be a good place to start, just because that's um, Peterson's most well-known book and I think also his kind of easiest book to grapple with. And um, I want to know to what extent, how much can we deduce about, let's start with his politics um, from, from that book. And Matt, I think you had some things you wanted to immediately say and then everybody else jump in when you would like to.
2: Uh, sure. So I just want to say, like um, again, thanks a lot for having us here, Iona, and uh, a shout out to our other co-authors, Conrad Hamilton, and also Slava Zizek, uh, who wrote. Oh, I forgot.
0: Sorry, I got so anxious about pronouncing his name that I forgot to mention him. Um,
2: It's important because uh, my wife and I met uh, at a lecture uh, Zizek was giving, so he. We were very excited when he agreed to write the introduction to our book. It's kind of like things came full circle, right?
0: Um, yes, it was extraordinary. Actually, when I was reading your, your book, um, I, I, I didn't realize at first, I somehow had skipped in my Kindle, I had skipped the first page. So I didn't see that what I was reading was by Zizek. And I've never encountered, I've never. Act, well, I've encountered him before, but only in the form of memes, I have to confess <laughs> and I was reading this thing, and I thought, that's odd, that doesn't sound like Matt. That can't be Matt. <laughs> yeah. Somebody else." His style bad. is almost
2: impossible to emulate.
0: And then I, th- uh, and then I thought, um, um, who is this guy? He's he's really sensible. I agree with almost everything he has to say. <laughs> and then then um, it was only at the end when I realized it was um, Zizek. Actually, I thought it was odd when it got to the the part uh, a section which is called responding to my enemies (laughs) (laughs) it's definitely not matt
2: (laughs) no yeah no he definitely has a a few more enemies than i would ever want to have um although they do say that you know you know the caliber person by the kind of people who oppose him and in that respect i'd say um jizik did quite well um just on your question though about the politics of 12 rules for life I think the book demonstrates two important points about Peterson's approach to politics. Um, the first one is that he doesn't have a specific political program in the sense that you or I might uh, think of it. Uh, you know, a set of principles, associated policies uh, that he hopes to realize through institutional agitation uh, or even through dramatic um, change in the public sphere. You know, and. I think this relates back to his kind of theoretical outlook, drawing on things like Jungian uh, psychoanalysis, Nietzschean philosophy, um, Dostoevsky, and so on and so forth. All of them are a bit more about kind of outlook uh, to politics rather than a program. Uh, The second thing that I think is important to note about Peterson's approach to politics is that this kind of outlook-based approach uh, to political issues is very consistent, as we talked a bit about last time, uh, with the history of conservative thought Uh, which tends to define itself not so much by what it stands for, so much as what it's reacting against. In this case, various forms of left-wing extremism or pushing too far. Uh, And you really see this reflected in 12 Rules for Life, particularly in his chapters on postmodern neo-Marxism, which we'll talk about the problems uh, about it a little while later. Uh, A lot of the things that he puts forward uh, as actual political points uh, are really just in opposition uh, to the prevalence he sees uh, of pro modern neo-Marxism in the Academy and in our broader culture. Uh, and I think this is really important to note because it's something that we criticize in the book when we note that he's not really very specific uh, when it comes to articulating what it is that he wants. And I think this is a problem both for himself uh, and for conservatism more generally.
1: Yeah. Uh, can, I, can I jump in about 12 Rules for Life specifically? Even though I think when you break down like 12 Rules for Life, like if you just sort of look at the list of rules, almost all of it's perfectly good self-help advice. I mean, I think, uh, 10, uh, 10 of the 12 rules are very reasonable. And, uh, the exceptions are, uh, if you see a cat in the street, pet it, which is a good way to bring the, you know, diseases home to your pet. And, um, and the one about, uh, child rearing, you know, which, which seems like it, uh, it gets a little bit too authoritarian for my taste, but you know, 10 of the rules are fine, right? You should, you know, like you should stand up straight and clean your room. And, and I, I don't think any of us uh, especially have a problem with that. Uh, There are certainly, you know, people in the world, especially young men who are, you know, clearly Peterson's target demographic who could benefit from advice like that. But that said, I think that for a self-help book, his politics are to a surprising extent all over that book. Um, the like the opening pages of the book are an extended metaphor about lobsters and hierarchy, where he explicitly makes uh, comparisons between lobster hierarchy and class, you know, class divisions uh, in uh, human economies. Um, he uh, he he talks about postmodern Marxism or postmodern neo Marxism or whatever this concept is supposed to be uh, in uh, in Twelve Rules for Life, um, and and it's I, I think that that all of that makes it clear that there is to his mind a connection between these things that um, that uh, like rather than in fact I, I think that a, a theme of, of Peterson's. Is, is that you should, you know, stand up straight and, you know, clean your room and try to get ahead at work rather than complaining about the way that society is organized. So I, I, I don't – I think although the on paper the self-help advice is – most of it is very separable from, uh, from his particular ideological affinities, I think in practice the two are pretty closely related. I would
0: push back on that a little bit because I think that it is – it's in, in the nature of self-help books to be conservative, in a sense. So this message that you should clean your own room first before you put your own house in order, before you go out and, and try to so, try to change things in the outside world, um, that I can see how in Peterson's philosophy that is a, um, a council of political passivity because no one can ever have their own house completely in order.
1: And as as Zizek pointed out in the debate, uh, which Conrad covers in his section of the book, uh, it could very well be that, you know, that there are larger societal reasons that your own room is not entirely in order. Right, of course. But it it is a, um, in self-help
0: books in, in general and in kind of psychological advice. I mean, one reason why, my shrink and every other psychologist i've met um hates social justice ideology is because um if you're going to heal your personal psychological problems you have to you have to begin with yourself um if you feel that you're not there are things that you're not in control of then that is a recipe for feeling um feeling like a victim rather than healing so um, on a, on a kind of psychological basis, that, that is the usual advice of self-help books. It's focusing on you because that's the thing you have control over. That's also kind of standard stoic advice in, in a way.
2: Well, could I just jump in there and say uh, one of the points that I criticize him uh, on in this book is actually a good piece of Taoist wisdom, which is sometimes if you want to help yourself, the best thing that you can do is to try to help someone else. Uh, And this is where I think it's actually very dangerous to suggest that the way that people will improve their own lives is purely through personal uh, forms of self-improvement. I think that there are a lot of different ways that you can get involved in your community, try to make life better for everyone, uh, and that will ultimately be beneficial to yourself and to your family as well. And, you know, one of the things that I point out in the book is something like, say, unionization, right? Uh, We've seen... Rates of unionization decline precipitously across most of the Western world, uh, with the exception, I should point out, of Finland. Uh, And a union is a place where, through cooperating with others uh, in a democratic uh, system, uh, for fair wages, for a decent standard of living, uh, you improve your life while at the same time improving everyone else around you. And I think when leftists take issue with this kind of hyper-individualistic sense of self-improvement that he's talking about, The reason is that we are all for self-improvement. We just think that it should be done in cooperation with others, if at all possible.
3: Well, uh, I also want to jump in there, going back to what uh, you were saying, Iona, because I think Peterson is more dangerous in that respect. Because I think what he does is, um, rather than saying, as Ben was, for example, uh, mentioning that... um, you should first improve yourself and then try to improve others, or, which is what you also mentioned. I think Peterson is more dangerous because what I read is that what he says is, uh, you sh- like, he's kind of depoliticizing any kind of issue, right? By just saying, this is only like in the individual sphere and that's it, right? Kind of what man Ma- Ma was saying, like a very hyper individualistic approach to everything, which says, no, like, uh, none of this is really political, while at the same time, and this is why uh, I name, for example, in the book, my uh, critique, like, contradictions, because uh, although he says, okay, this is only an individual issue, that's his political agenda, right? Kind of uh, depoliticizing all of um, these elements of, for example, social issues and social justice and, um are relevant and, of
1: course, can only be understood in their political dimension. Yeah, so so I wanted to um, to go back to the point about whether this is just sort of innate in um, psychiatric and self-help advice and and the the extent to which or um, or even other self-improvement traditions like Stoicism. Uh, Versus the the extent to which uh, Peterson is providing a version of self-help that's that's particularly closely bound up with with his conservative views, and you know, and and I do I, I do see the point, right? You know, self self-help uh, is very in general, uh, or you know, any sort of you know uh, any sort of self-healing or self-improvement you know discourse you know, is there's going to be some tendency to shy away from social explanations, at least because the social explanations are presumably less under your control. Not entirely not under your control, as Matt suggests. Uh, if, you know, if one of the reasons that you're having such a hard time in your personal life is that you're uh, having to spend so much time scraping and hustling just to get by and you don't have time to spend with your family and everything – then maybe you know organizing a union so you can you know get higher wages or fewer hours uh, might actually you know might actually be something that you can't do yourself but you know you it's certainly something you can meaningfully participate in and play a big role in making happen but um, but but I I think there probably is still going to be uh, still going to be some tension there uh, but there are also. Um, they're also not going to be, um, you know, I think necessarily incompatible, right? I mean, I'm thinking of the, uh, Reinhold Niebuhr quote, right? They like to give you, you know, 12 step programs about, uh, uh, about, uh, trying to fix the thing, you know, uh, fix the things that you can and, and, uh, and make peace with the things that you can't and, you know, be, and be wise enough to know the difference. Uh, and, and so I, I think the, the question is, is really more about locating the line, right? You know, what's the, um, you know, like, I, I think all the controversy, you know, because I think everybody can probably accept that, like, you know, it's not healthy to spend all of your time, you know, fuming about things that you have relatively little control over and, you know, uh, and, and presumably – Almost everybody, at least, would admit that uh, that there are social conditions, or at least have been in some societies, that you know legitimately do um, call out for some sort of collective effort and improvement. You know, like something I always think when when I hear uh, the sort of critique that it's some some. Uh, some people make, you know, like some conservatives make of of efforts at social justice as being, you know, well, this is this just be this just feeds into bitterness and you know and all this and is that I always think, my God, you could you could apply that to anybody, any dissident in any society, right? You know, if uh, if somebody is an anti-Stalinist dissident in Poland in 1950, you know, you could tell them stop being so bitter. You know about society and focus on improving your own situation and you know climbing the ladder within the party or whatever. Um, but uh, so so presumably, you know, if only examples like Poland in 1950, we can all agree that there are societies that you know that require improvement and that will really have bad effects on people's lives. Uh, and we can all presumably agree that there is some role for. Uh, for some combination of of, uh, of you know psychiatry or self help or you know or just or even just stoic advice about how to face life's trials better because no possible social improvement is going to eliminate all um, adversity uh, but but I, I think the I think the real controversy is about where. Uh, where to draw the line, right? What sorts of things we should just accept and which we shouldn't. And I think that in Peterson's case, the way that he presents the self-help advice, like he'll literally, you know, like there are literally a couple pages on you know, postmodern neo-Marxism in a self-help book, you know, that uh, I think the way that he presents it, there's an unusually close and clear relationship between his conservative politics uh, and, and his role as a self-help guru.
0: Um, yes and I think there is a um, there is a case to be made for the idea that we have increasingly privatized mental health and um, we see it as a we've medicalized it it's about your your character your personality your philosophy your brain chemistry etc and in fact many times, People's depressions, anxieties, and difficulties are are caused by external factors, and this is something that Johann Hari talks a lot about in *Lost Connections*, which is one of my favorite books. And it's kind of an anti uh, a self um, it's a it's a the kind of anti self help book. It's a book against the against that kind of, those kinds of limitations within the sort of self-help industry, that it's really everything is about you, the individual, and up to you. And it's about changing your attitudes. It's about getting the right medications or reading Jordan Peterson or whatever it might be. It's not about the fact that you're lonely and you you need some kind of club or community support or um, or you're working some really dead-end, soul-destroying job, um, all of the hours God sends, and you're bored, you're stressed, and you don't have a purpose in life, or you're worried about paying your rent. All of those kinds of things get can get swept under the carpet with this focus on, on individuals' responsibility for their own well-being.
2: Yeah, and if I could just uh, add into that, right? Um, I wanted to say, you know, I went to therapy to help deal with... Um, Asperger's, which is, you know, is a social communication disorder, and I found it extremely helpful. That was certainly an individual quest on my part for self-improvement that, with the exception of those in my immediate circle, might not necessarily benefit anyone else. Uh, But it was paid for in no small part by my union, uh, because I was at York University, I was doing my PhD, we have a uh, strong uh, degree of labor agitation there, uh, and I was able to get medical benefits uh, that aren't available to anyone. So there's A very material connection between how viable it is for you to deal with your personal problems uh, and the kind of social context in which you exist, which is something I can speak to personally. Uh, And I also wanted to speak on a more theoretical point, uh, because I thought what you said there was really smart, Iona. Uh, If you look at the kind of psychoanalytical tradition that Peterson comes out of, uh, going back to Freud, Jung, uh, Nietzsche, uh, many of the figures uh, that were on the left end of this movement we're very aware of the fact that the kind of society you live in uh, has a dramatic impact on your, micro, your mental health. Uh, so, for instance, Eric Fromm, uh, who I've written about a little bit, uh, has a fantastic book called The Art of Loving, uh, where he talks about how in a hyper-competitive, highly individualistic society where we're trained only to think about ourselves, as you pointed out, it can be very difficult to form meaningful, loving relations because we tend to look at everyone in terms of what we can get from out of them. Uh, rather than what we can give to them uh, in order to receive. And Fromm said that, yes, this is absolutely something that has to be dealt with at the individual level, but you also need really dramatic social change in order to stop producing these kinds of personalities again and again and again, uh, because this is ultimately what the liberal capitalist system uh, is about. And unless you refine or change it or improve it, you're not going to see any fundamental improvements. You're just going to be applying band-aid solutions to what are ultimately structural problems. And I think that's a really smart point
1: that prom made. I, I, I also think that this is something uh, that, I mean, this this does bring us to, to what I often think of as maybe like the central tension in uh, in Peterson's worldview, which is that, uh, uh, well, which is something that Matt and I talk about in a uh, preview article for this that we uh, co-wrote for Jacobin, might or might not be coming out sometime soon. Uh, but uh, that we, um, you know, but like that on the one hand, Peterson uh, tends to uh, be a fairly uncritical uh, celebrant of uh, free market capitalism. Um, and like you know, like he'll he'll often, you know, uh, say, that like, you know, real social justice just is free markets or, you know, that, uh, he'll, he'll celebrate, you know, the, the, uh, the real and alleged achievements, you know, of, of, of free, you know, free markets and, you know, lifting people out of poverty. Uh, and he'll, um, and he'll, he'll, use these comparisons to, uh, to animals, you know, lobsters or sometimes even ants uh, to sort of mock the idea that uh, economic inequality is a result of historically contingent human social arrangements rather than just uh, this deep fact, of, you know, a, a result of some deep facts about our biology, at least that's what he seems to be suggesting when he makes these analogies. So on the one hand, there's all of that. And then, on the other hand, uh, he's very worried about the the decline of uh, of uh, traditional. Well, to borrow another Peterson phrase, maps of meaning. Right? You know, he's he's very he's very worried about the decline of uh, of Christianity and uh, and traditional families and uh, you know to you know traditional gender roles and things like that. And you know. Some of those worries I'm more sympathetic with than others. Obviously, uh, I think that, I think that some of the some of the uh, systems who's, who's passing, his mourning, you know, were were very bad for you know uh, human flourishing. But some of what he's concerned about, I, I think, are, are reasonable concerns uh, that you know that it is like you know like it is bad, right? Like this that uh, that people don't uh, you know have certain senses of organic community that like insofar as this leads to loneliness and alienation and stress and all of this uh, but the big tension seems to me that uh, he never seems to put the two subjects together right you know he he seems uh, that uh, that the that in fact look um, you know the the central reason why uh, traditional bonds of family and community and church and all this stuff have been declining isn't, um, you know, left-wing professors like me and Matt and uh, Marion, you know, it's, uh, uh, and, and it's not, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not socialism, it's not feminism, you know, it's, it's, it's the operation of market forces. Uh, and, and, you know, I mean, this is what Marx talks about in the Communist Manifesto when he has that famous, you know, that evocative line about how, you know, as, as capital kind of remakes the world in its own image, all that solid melts into air. Uh, and, 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 and that's a tension I never really see Peterson grappling with that, you know, that the, that the, the very things that he's so concerned about fading away are fade to the extent that they're fading away or fading away to a great extent, just because of the, you know, the operations of, of unrestricted laissez-faire capitalism. And we could argue about the extent to which that's a good thing or a bad thing. But, um, but I, I think this sort of obsession with, uh, with blaming it on the you know cultural influence of like, uh, of you know academics and you know in Paris in the seventies and eighties, uh, rather than blaming it on um, on the more sort of basic economic forces of society, is really something that allows him to escape from being having to grapple with that contradiction.
0: Yeah, it seems to me that I think there are at least two things uh, going on there, and one is that. One reason why people aren't living, not not as many people are living in kind of traditional family structures with one breadwinner and one stay-at-home parent with a breadwinning husband and the stay-at-home mother and and um, all of the children and the baking of apple pie at the weekend uh, is for economic reasons, that people can't afford to live off one salary. And um we don't reward people for staying home with children. We don't make it easy for people to get to uh, have support in their childcare. care. It's, it's partly for economic reasons. It's partly because of capitalism that people are abandoning those older structures. And I think the other thing is there's a wonderful passage that you quote, I think it's in Matt's section of the book, and uh, where... Mark says that before there were these natural. I'm I'm um, paraphrasing this. I don't remember the wording at all. So this is an extremely. This is not what Mark said. This is my own interpretation. But money is the great leveler. It used to be the case that it, uh, if a man has money, if a man is ugly but he has money, people will tell him he's beautiful and he will be able to um, find a beautiful young wife. I mean, look at Trump and. Uh, Iva- and Ivana um, and Melania, sorry. A <laughs> <laughs> bit, bit behind on his <laughs> wives there. Uh, <laughs> look at Trump and his various wives. Yeah, if the man is vulgar, but he has money, he can buy respect. Um, if if he's stupid, but he has money, um, he can also buy respect. You know, if you are a really bad writer, but you have enough money, you can self-publish. If you are really have no... Clue about how to handle politics, but you can buy enough advertisements, you can maybe get enough support to get yourself into the White House, even. And that's what we're seeing with Bloomberg. Although, hopefully, I think he's kind of out of it now. But yeah, that's capitalism is not a preserver of traditional values in that sense.
2: Yeah, and this is actually one of the things I talk about in the book on postmodern conservatism um, and a bunch of my other writings on postmodernism. I mean. There's this assumption that capitalism is inherently rational because all values can be quantified. And, you know, I think that this is to a certain extent a good thing, and I don't want to get too much into it. But the thing about all values being quantifiable is it suggests that all values are ultimately relative, right? They can be put into price relations with one another. Uh, And I think this is a big divergence even from classical liberalism, a la somebody like uh, Immanuel Kant, uh, because Kant said, you know, human beings have a dignity that placed them beyond price. Uh, Fast forward to the 20th century, uh, and the 21st century, and we now know that the market uh, believes that the actual price for a human being is $10 million, roughly, give or or take, uh, in a developed state. And when you kind of engender this mentality across the whole of society and all cultural traditions and so on, you shouldn't be surprised when people take a very relativistic attitude towards their life, uh, because everything is relative, right? Value is quantified. Uh, they're set against one another, and everything has
1: a cost. Yeah, and and I, I also do think that it's important um, that that you know those of us who who are on the left and who are critics of capitalism acknowledge the uh, the other side of this point, which is that there's a kind of uh, simplistic leftism that um, that sort of assumes that all the things that we don't like always march in tandem with each other. Uh, that uh, uh, that, you know, uh, if we don't like capitalism and we also don't like, you know, racism or sexism or bigotry towards, you know, trans people, then like those things must all be kind of the same thing. And of course, that's not really true. Uh, it's much more complicated than that. I mean, there are extents to which, of course, you know, capitalism has historically um, uh you know, led to, to certain forms of, you know, racial stratification because of the history of slavery and everything. But like, there's also an extent to which, uh, to which capitalism uh, does undermine those other sorts of uh, traditional structures that, you know, that if you, that there are market, you know, market pressures just working themselves out do lead to uh, the undermining of, of some of those traditional bigotries because, at a certain point, it's just bad for business, right? You know, you want the uh, you want the most talented person, you know, regardless of their you know gender identity or whatever. Uh, and, and so, I, I think that the smarter critique of capitalism isn't that um, isn't that like capitalism equals you know all the you know racism and sexism and all these traditional bigotries. Uh, because to, to a certain extent it actually has a positive leveling effect when it comes to them um, it's it's the smarter critique is that the more we're just letting the you know invisible hand of the market do what's what it wants then some of the social changes that leads to might be beneficial some of them may be the op you know maybe very bad right and, and as and the larger society doesn't have very much you know, democratic control over how and when and why those sorts of social changes occur. But, you know, I think you could make that criticism without sort of pretending that it's all, um, you know, it's just all all uniformly bad and that all the bad things, you know, are, are inseparable from each other. So, so all we have to do is kind of, you know, um, is, is, is kind of hack away at the sort of single tangle of badness and that everything will be all right. I have
0: to just interject to say to my listeners that I love capitalism. And um, I mean, I think that um, I don't believe in completely unfettered capitalism with no um, safety net uh, for the less fortunate. I am believer in a strong welfare state. And this is why I think, as Ben and I have in common, I'm, I'm a, a fan of Bernie Sanders' program, for example. Um, but I definitely think that Capitalism is a good thing. I just, I, I don't think, as Peterson seems to think, that capitalism uh, is somehow a means of preserving traditional values, uh, whether those are good values or bad values. Yeah,
3: sorry, and I think that's the paradox as Ben started to point in, uh, to point out, right? The fact that uh, he believes that uh, these like this uh is thinking is attention here, right? By like trying to believe that capitalism can kind of overcome this and go back to tradition when uh like uh, early important analysis not uh like Ben mentioned Marx, right? But like you cannot even mention Adam Smith, right? Even Adam Smith said right one of one of the very virtues of uh, the free market economy is that we move out from tradition and that in the market, everyone is equal, right? There are now this is stratification that are precisely, uh, social stratification is precisely like a main characteristic of traditional societies, right? So I think this is where um, one of the main critiques that comes out in the book, right? That uh, Peterson sometimes seems a little bit... um, ignorant of these larger traditions, and um, I hate to say ignorant because at least Matt and I believe that he can be a very smart man, right, but when it comes to like his larger view of this uh, history of thought and even like historical developments, he falls short a lot of times into acknowledging these uh, issues.
2: Yeah, and I just wanted to add on to that. Um, I completely agree with what Ben said. Uh, I didn't mean my comments to be taken as a kind of unbridled critique of capitalism or suggesting that it hasn't done anything. Uh, I don't think even Marx made that point. I mean, if you read the Communist Manifesto carefully, you'll see that he's extraordinarily emphatic about all the benefits capitalism has brought to the world, the way it's upended, old inequalities, the way it has remarkable productive capacity. What I don't think capitalism is particularly good at is taking the goods that are produced, under these remarkable relations of production and distributing them in a fair manner. So the way I typically characterize myself, at least personally, uh, is as a liberal socialist, uh, somebody like John Rawls or Marc uh, where I think that inequality is entirely permissible, but you have to demonstrate that inequalities work to the benefit, first and foremost, of the least well off. Um, and this is a much more fair, and I think ultimately a much more liberal way to, employ, uh, to approach inequalities uh, and the fair distribution of goods than what we see under the kind of unbridled market capitalism that Peterson sometimes suggests he
1: supports yeah well if uh, if you read that uh, uh, Edmondson book John Rawls Ritissian, uh socialist, I think that uh, I, I think that Rawls late in life you know like when he wrote uh, justice is fairness or Restatement might have been you know coming around to the view that that you don't um, you know you don't just need to um, to sort of redistribute uh, goods uh, that, you know, that, that you might need to, uh, that in order to sort of fully achieve his, um, uh, his liberal, his, his version of liberal values, that you also need to change the structure of, uh, of, you know, of workplace organization and, uh, uh, and ownership, you know, uh, which, which, which is, I don't want to get too far off track here, but, but you know, I, I just I just want to underline, right? You know, that I might be uh, I'm not totally sure how how distant how distant Matt's uh, Matt's version of liberal socialism ultimately is from uh, uh, from what, what I'd advocate. You know, it's the uh, this next time I'm in uh, Mexico, we're gonna you know, have to have to devote a, a long night of uh, of tequila and mezcal to figuring that out. But, but you know but i, I think that I'm, i i'm i may be the most anti-capitalist person in the conversation you know but i also i i i also just think that there's a there's a there's like a silly way to be anti-capitalist and there there are um, uh there're smarter ways ways to to be critical of, of capitalism uh and and one um and you know and and certainly certainly marx who uh who who, by the way, a footnote? I think I think if you read Critique of the Gotha Program, I'm not sure that Marx disagrees with Rawls's principle about inequality at all. But uh, uh, but if uh, but you know, but certainly I think I, I think I think Marx was the smarter kind of critic of capitalism. That you know that he saw he saw that it, it, in some ways it, it had these these uh, very positive liberatory effects, and in some ways it, uh you know it inhibited. Uh, human, you know, human flourishing and, and freedom, uh, and, and that, um, and, and that it, it mattered, you know, it wasn't just, you know, to, to borrow a line from, um, from Nathan Robinson, you know, right, like when, when we're talking about complex social systems, you know, we shouldn't think in caveman-like grunts of this is good and this is bad, right? We should, we, you know, we need to have some sort of analysis of exactly which parts are good and exactly which parts are bad, and therefore what would constitute an improvement versus what would be a step backwards. I think I want
0: to, I, I, I really hate cutting you short on this, and um, I kind of want to throw in my own two cents very quickly, which is that I don't, I don't care about inequality personally um I care about hardship so I'm only concerned I'm concerned that the people at the bottom have a minimum standard of flourishing and I would like to see everyone having the same opportunities but I think that inequalities are not only natural but kind of healthy and I think that you actually talk about this a bit in the book um Matt Uh, when you were talking about Peterson's views on Marx. But I think we're getting a little far away from Peterson himself, and I want to come back to him. And I think that I'd like to talk a bit about Peterson's use of Jung and archetypes, and maybe this can feed into his views about women and the relationships between the sexes. Because one thing that that runs through his, his work is this preoccupation with themes of chaos versus order. And as, um, as you guys outline in the book, the character who is too, um, in his earlier work, like in, uh, in Maps of Meaning, for example, Peterson advocates a kind of middle term between chaos and order. Because chaos, the dark, the feminine, um, the um, chaos is obviously bad, but too much order leads to authoritarianism, totalitarian systems. Um, In particular, he's thinking of Soviet Russia. Um, And but in increasingly in 12 um, Rules for Life and in his later talk, he, he, you lose that sense of balance and the emphasis is entirely upon maintaining order over chaos. And chaos for him is, I know that he is often using the feminine principle in this Jungian metaphorical sense, but he does actually seem to mean women by that. That at least is my impression. Marion, maybe you'd like to uh, talk about this.
3: Yes uh actually I have uh, a similar reading of Peterson from what you are uh, mentioning I think uh, he certainly of course equals chaos to women uh, especially in 12 rows for life right like uh, and I agree with you I think uh, Peterson is deeply authoritarian and you don't only read that in 12 rows for life I think you can also see that mostly in his interactions with women. Like something that I noticed when I was doing my research for the book is like I watch a lot of his videos on the on the internet and uh, I also of course read the the books. But like in the videos, something that popped to my eye was like he is um, aggressive (laughs) when he is uh, interacting with women, right? And you don't see the same type of disposition when Peterson talks to men. And I think that tells us a lot of, like, his views on women. And in 12 Rules for, for Life, what I see is he wants order just like, a, as you said, not that order that falls into, like, the totalitarian Soviet type of order. It's just like a traditional, like, a Western type of manly order, what he wants, right? And, um I uh I I don't know. Some people disagree with that. I do. I think you can see that, right? Like in, in uh, places in in Twelve Rules for Life, when he says like, "No, we should fight the feminization of like the university," right? Uh, and what he I think actually means is like when women occupy like roles that were denied to them, right? That when by feminization, I think he means that, right? He uh like just women advancing the role, he doesn't like that. So in that sense, I would say he's not only a, tra- a traditionalist, but also like a, a reactionary, right? He is deeply concerned about uh, women just gaining an equal role, not like uh, in society when when that happens. Uh,
2: and I just wanted to add to that, Iona, uh... I can't really uh, speak to Mary's research because she's looked into this a lot more than I do. Uh, but you're, you're completely right, I think, in saying that there's a bit of a conservative shift in his work between Maps of Meaning and Twelve Rules for Life. Uh, and actually, if you read one of his papers written in the 2000s, uh, he actually makes this quite express when he talks about the myth of Osiris uh, and Set. Um, have you ever heard of the myth of Osiris and Set?
0: Um, no, oh. actually. Tell
2: us the story. Uh, So Osiris was an Egyptian god, uh, the king of the country, uh, and his brother Set, uh, who's associated with chaos, uh, comes and kills Osiris, or at least dismembers him, uh, and Osiris retreats to the underworld, but his son Horus uh, comes to rescue him. Uh, And apparently, at least in uh, Peterson's interpretation, Horus is associated with science, progress, and the new, uh, and what he essentially does is supplant Osiris, who's associated with Tradition, uh, stability—you know, the continuance with the past. Uh, And Peterson claims that we now live in an age dominated by Horace-type sensibilities. That the thing to do is always to overcome the past, always to create the new, always to enact progress. Uh, And he pretty expressly states that he thinks the culture right now has gone way too far in this respect. Uh, And I think this is the tipping point, really, where he starts focusing on establishing a balance uh, and he starts focusing on saying.
1: We need to move in the other direction. Um, if that makes any sense. Yeah, uh, just a uh, just a little footnote to this one. Um, one thing that uh, that really bothers me on kind of a petty level about uh, all of the Peterson stuff, where he uh, where he says that uh, you know the sort of archetypal principle of, of order is like essentially masculine. And the, you know, and the sort of deep, mythic, archetypal um, principle of, of chaos is essentially feminine, is that beyond anything else that you want to say about that, uh, it strikes me as not even getting mythology right. That, um, that if, like, Lida Gold, who's one of the editors of Current Affairs, has a, uh, uh, has an article about this uh, from, from summer 2018. I was, I was just looking at it, and she points out you know, many examples, but I mean, this is kind of common sense, right? Like that they, uh, that, you know, that if you look at, if, you know, you don't have to know that much about a lot of mythological systems to know that like Loki, you know, like most trickster gods is male and, uh, and, and certainly, uh, certainly a force of, uh, of, of chaos that in fact, the other North Norse gods try to uh, try to reform Loki at one point by, by giving him a goddess wife, you know, so she'll stabilize him. Uh, and, and if, you know, if you really do the union thing and think that these mythic archetypes are supposed to just show up everywhere. Cause we're just sort of spontaneously reproducing them all the time. then like, I, you know, who, who seems to be more of a force of chaos, uh, Peter Griffin or Lois Griffin, Marge Simpson or Homer Simpson. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I love that. I was, I was going to talk about, um, Athena and Dionysus and things, but I prefer your examples.
1: Yes, but but Athena is a great example.
0: Yeah, there are certain certainly many male male mischief makers. Um, that's for certain in mythology, and I think that Peterson's. I mean, Peterson reminds me very often of Casaubon in um, in George Eliot's novel Middlemarch. This it's this kind of uh, golden bow style um, endeavor that he is engaged in a, a search for a key to all mythologies, one overarching mythology to rule them all. And it's, that is such a, it's, that is looking at life, society, individuals, stories, narratives with, at such a high level of abstraction that I, I find it a little bit uninformative. I have the same feeling I had reading uh, Foucault's Pendulum, which I don't know if you have um, read Umberto Eco's novel. And I think um, Umberto's hero sees Masonic symbolism everywhere, basically. And at one point, his girlfriend, here you you go, a woman who is the force for order amid the chaos, says says to him, um, don't you think that if, Everything is meaningful, nothing is meaningful.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know what they say to a man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right?
0: Mm.
3: Yeah, mm. that I also uh, wanted to point out in my own section when, uh, as a woman that uh, has spent most of her life in Latin America, I think that Peterson also uh, um, makes generalizations that are difficult to sustain in other parts of the world right and That's i understand true. that he like when he speaks of the west he's of course mostly speaking about white europeans and north americans that doesn't include mexico right but uh actually to like a fairly like although it's a debate in the scholarship, like Latin America is oftentimes considered like the West, you know, like the periphery of the West, if you want to see it that way, right? So when he talks about the West, I think, uh, yeah, he like uh, fails to engage, right, this kind of, uh, again, peripheral uh, areas or regions like Latin America, but still, right, when he says like, oh, the feminists are taking over the university, like, uh, like that's not at all the case, like in... In Latin America, at least in Mexico, it was until last year and this year that feminists at the universities actually start growing as a considerable movement, right? Like, and it's just been uh, like something very, very recent, and they are not at all taking over the university, as Peterson says, right? Like, most of their claims of women in the university are for, sexual aggressions to enter, for example, the codes of the universities, so they can be typified and they can be, you know, uh, uh, women can actually go through the, the um, legal, you know, paths at universities. So it's not at all something uh, as totalitarian as he usually tries to convey as what women are doing, you know.
1: Oh, I was just going to say uh, what, one one part of Marriott's comment I really wanted to kind of underline and circle was the thing about the West because um, this is maybe an undercommented thing about uh, Peterson, but he he talks about the West a lot, right? Like that's that's a that's a phrase he very frequently uses, and as with most people who are very concerned with the West, I'm never quite sure what it means, uh, like because um, if you. <laughs> You know, if you mean it geographically it better mean Latin America too or else you know I'm really confused um, but uh, and if you mean like you know uh, what what's called Christendom then yeah it should also include Latin America uh, and and this is and this is this this might seem like um, kind of a petty point but I think the larger significance of it is that uh, he is that when he talks about defending the West, or he'll say things like, "In the West, we figured out thousands of years ago that you know, individual, you know, the sanctity of the individual," uh, which I, I, you know, like, I'm never sure what that means either. Uh, but, uh, but in, um, but you know, if we were talking about if it was meant in a remotely literal way, then you would think that he would be interested in defending the West against like. I don't know. Maybe like Western influence, Western interest in Buddhism, right? That would be an example of an actually non-Western view coming into the West. But what he seems to be primarily concerned oh, with when he talks
0: Bu- about Buddhism, oh, yeah. I heard nudism like, for some reason. Sorry,
1: go ahead. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, that's as Western as anything. Uh, but yeah, like like he would be talking about, about Buddhism or Hinduism if he was actually talking about genuinely non-Western, um, you know, philosophies coming into the West, uh, but he doesn't, right? Like, he's the the things that he seems to be primarily concerned with defending the West against are currents, you know, like socialism and feminism that uh, not only are not intrinsically non-Western, but had deep roots in enlightenment liberalism.
2: Yeah, I wanted to add on to that by saying... One of the things that motivated me to look into this guy originally was all the hoopla uh, that we heard, particularly in Canada, because I was in Toronto at at the time, about how controversial he was, how he was articulating new paths in life, uh, how he was pushing against a totalitarian establishment. And then you read his book, and an awful lot of it happens to be about what's going on at elite institutions that very few students happen to go to in Canada and the United States. And a part of me was like, really? I mean, is this the most absolutely urgent thing that's going on uh, at the moment? And I'm not saying it's not important. Uh, you know, Ben and I kind of like to associate with the kind of anti-PC left. And I think there are problems that we can talk about here. But the sheer amount of significance he gives to this struggle uh, seems to me uh, disproportional to the actual significance uh, of what's going on in the world right now when we're dealing with things like climate change, rising inequality, you know, the election of, right-wing authoritarians all across the globe uh, who have actual political power. None of this stuff is really given that much attention in this work, and I think that's a real shame.
0: I, I would defend him in that regard because I think it's natural for an academic to be primarily concerned with the academy, and for a Western academic to be primarily concerned with developments at universities in the West. Um, even though I don't think these this is in any way the largest problem facing us. So my main quarrel with people who are anti-SJW, to, to use a kind a little bit of a shorthand term, um, is not their critiques of woke students in the academy, which are critiques that I share. And we might have some disagreement on this. And I don't want to get into the weeds on that too closely, um, because I don't want to drift away from Peterson. But my, my problem is not it's not their critiques of left-wing academe, um, not even um, that they might focus on left-wing academe. So my colleague Helen Pluckrose focuses her energies completely on critiquing that, and I think that is perfectly fair. Um, people specialize, and they have their... Um, for many people, it makes sense to have their area of greatest preoccupation, and that is that is what they... Examine and critique and trace and track and and where I what annoys me is when people um like for example Dave Rubin pronounce that this is the biggest danger facing us. Um as an Indian, I'm just kind of astounded by the fact that he can say that and by a kind of I don't mind anybody critiquing authoritarian tendencies on the left, and I am the first person to agree with them, but I find that many people have a blind spot, and by that I don't mean just they're focusing on the left, so they're not talking about the right. That's okay with me, but they're not not only doing that, but they're kind of lionizing the right. They're saying, oh, there aren't any authoritarians on the right, and I'm like, Trump, Modi, Erdogan, <laughs> you know, um, a, a, a thousand other people. Sorry, I, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm really. Oh, we have a um, an an actual kind of quasi fascist government in power in the world's largest democracy. I can't see how, under those circumstances, anybody can think that the author- authoritarian left is the only problem facing us or the biggest problem, or that authoritarianism is not a problem on the right.
2: Yeah, and this is one of the points where I actually find Peterson quite interesting because I tend to agree with part of his analysis of totalitarianism, particularly the bits uh, that emulate people like Eric Fromm, who I mentioned earlier. You know, One of the things that he says is that in the absence of stabilizing traditions and mores, you're going to have people either retreating into extreme cynicism uh, on the one hand, or you're going to have people embracing new forms of totalitarianism on the other. Uh, now, I have a bit of a materialist critique of that, but I won't get into it, because I think in broad strokes, he's kind of right, and this is characteristic of modernity and now postmodernity in the 21st century. Uh, where I agree with you is that it's hardly a unique phenomenon uh, to the political left, and I think that if you were to actually look at the most dangerous authoritarians threatening us right now, uh, whether you look at somebody like Viktor Orban in Hungary, you know, who quite literally shut down a university when it disagreed with him, uh, or the Law and Justice Party in Poland, uh, which has actively tried to centralize all judicial power in its hands, also tried to uh, limit what reporters are able to say. You Look at Modi, who you pointed to, or Donald Trump and his praise of authoritarianism. It seems a little bit skewed if your primary concern, uh, as Peterson states, it is, uh, is with the emergence of totalitarian sentiments uh, on in the Western world uh, in post-modernity. To focus exclusively on what's going on at the university while ignoring these truly seismic political shifts that are going on all across the globe, and that I think pose a much more serious threat to our freedoms and our liberal freedoms in particular uh, that I think we ought to be defending and upholding. And actually, I admire Helen for doing so also so uh, shout out to her
0: for that yeah i think it's it's very different it's a very different project to say okay my project and my focus is um problem uh, anti free speech tendencies or illiberal tendencies on the left on or in left wing academia and that's what i'm going to concentrate on than to set yourself up as a kind of commentator on the world and society in general and paint that as the biggest concern i think those are two different things this is my area of specialization and this is the most important danger facing us are two quite distinct um attitudes and i think many people conflate them so i'm i'm glad that we're making that distinction here
1: yeah, I mean, I, I think it's I think it's worth making. I, I, I guess the one the one further distinction I make is that um, is that people I think that uh, overreaction to certain kinds of um, of uh, illiberal campus activism, for example, uh, or um, or or just. You know, intellectually bankrupt. You know, uh, acad- You know, progressive academic trends uh, can also be bad. Not just because people reach these conclusions about um, about what the biggest dangerous threat in the world are, or you know, maybe it's an example of them I'm implicitly reaching those conclusions. I don't know, but uh, but because sometimes people will actually ally. Uh, with uh, with those who pose a greater threat right mm-hmm. so uh, mm-hmm. so for so just off the top of my head right like so uh, you know there you know there's a clip where David Dave Rubin says positive things about uh, bolsonaro oh, whose name he has trouble. <laughs> Pronounce it, but he says Bolsonaro, Bolsonaro, you know, but like that's, uh, uh, and then he and then he sort of says, well, I don't know about, about much about it, but it sounds good, right? He, he wants to get the you know SJWs out, you know, it's, and it's uh, uh, and uh, and you know, Jordan Peterson, you know, has you know had a meeting with Victor Orban, and uh, and and there are certain um, and even on a more mundane level than those extreme examples. Um, I think sometimes you see people who are on the face of the much more reasonable than than any of the people we're talking about. Who who will, in their effort to correct what what worries them about college campuses, they'll like invite political interference in campuses by you know state legislatures, for example, uh, which which I think is is um, you know, which I worry is ultimately a much bigger long-term threat to, you know, academic freedom and the free exchange of ideas, than than anything that's sort of, um, you know, organically going on, you know, on campuses. Like, like I, I don't, I, I don't think anybody should, you know, I, I think that if like. You know, Ann Coulter goes to campus, and 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 students, you know, shout at her and don't let her talk. You know, I mean, I, I have the same critique of that that I'm sure everybody here does, and you know, I don't think they should do that, right? But I, I also worry that if uh, that that if if uh, people lose perspective and and see that and put too much emphasis on that, I mean, as you say, everybody can focus on whatever they want to focus. I'm, I'm not you know I'm not interested in in telling anybody not to focus get a focus on anything, but if people uh, but if people put too much importance on it, then, like, for example, they ultimately end up doing things like supporting uh, legal cha- you know, changes to have, like, more of sanctions on campus protests or, uh, or, you know, people overreact to certain silly academic trends by supporting uh, bills that would um, – that sort of invite political opinion, you know, interference in hiring or curriculum – uh, and and so that that's that's a that's that you know that, that's that's another concern to me because because I, I just i just think that like I, I have no problem whatsoever with somebody who wants to write a book about or focus on uh these these trends on campuses but I also think it's important to to keep some sort of sense of perspective about who has the most power in the real world mm.
0: yeah um I think this leads nicely into Peterson's um, miss on uh, peterson's sort of mischaracterization as i think it is of um, the social justice leftists of whom he disagrees or social justice leftist academic excesses let's say as postmodern neo-Marxism and i i personally think this is wrong on for two reasons one is that um, w- when we're talking about theory today on campuses today this is no longer postmodernism. So I think that critical theory, critical race theory, intersectionality, postcolonialism, those ideas were originally influenced by the postmodernists. But the postmodern postmodernism itself was fundamentally apolitical, and um, and a questioning of grand narratives, including grand narratives about. Identity oppression, etc. Um, and this is, in a sense, theory has developed into something much more politically effective, much leaner, and very different from the original postmodernism. Um, I dislike both personally, but I think they're completely different beasts. And so I think this has a nothing to do with postmodernism, um, and except in a historical sense, the postmodernists were the precursors, but um, the theorists of the 80s, 90s, the theorists, theorists, sorry, of the 90s and 2000s have left postmodernism behind. And I also think it has nothing to do with Marxism either, because it's Marxism is about um, economics. And what Peterson is complaining about are excesses of leftist identity politics. And I think he largely he does draw he does talk about right wing identity politics a little bit, um, but much less so, but excesses of left-wing identity politics, which really um is not about economics, it's about identity. Um and I wonder what your your view is about that mischaracterization, whether you see it in a similar way uh, to me or differently?
2: Uh, Well, personally, I think that we're about on the same page here. And I usually make a tripartite distinction uh, between Marxism as a theoretical and practical tradition, uh, postmodern theory, uh, as articulated by the kind of French classics, as a theoretical uh, and practical tradition, uh, and then social justice activism. Uh, And while there are relations between all of these, uh, as inevitably there will be, Uh, There are also some fundamental differences, and conflating all these things together uh, under a single neologism like postmodern neo-Marxism is as crude and reductive as my saying something like, well, all forms of conservatism or anyone on the right just tends to believe the same thing, uh, which is not true, right? There are many different variants of conservative and right-wing philosophy down through uh, through hundreds of years, uh, and we need to be attentive to those differences because sometimes they really matter. Uh, you You can look at the Never Trump movement as a good example. So, in my opinion, Marxism in its classical form uh, was very much a grand meta narrative. In fact, it's hard to think of a much more grand meta narrative. Uh, you know, Marx explained the functionings of all human societies, the whole of human history, uh, through this particular methodological lens.
1: Uh, now, you can quibble with whether. And in fact, it was. I mean, and in fact, I mean, just to underline the point, it was the primary grand meta narrative that uh, the original French postmodern theorists were rebelling against. Absolutely.
2: Explicitly. And, uh, you know, again, this went so far that, uh, as Ben was saying, in the 1960s in France, people like Althusser talked about Marx as the creator of the first true science of history uh, that was actually capable of making predictions in the same way that we hope uh, normal empirical science will be able to make. Uh, Now, I don't think that that's true, uh, but it goes to show you the kind of Tremendous aspirations, uh, epistemological and otherwise, that were ascribed to Marxism. Postmodern theory, uh, as articulated by people like Michel Foucault or Jacques Derrida, um, Jean-François Lyotard is a troubled case, uh, Richard Rourney, uh, you know, is a new variant of skepticism uh, that, as Iona pointed out, I think emerged in the 1960s, uh, mainly as a reaction to some of these political grand narratives like Marxism, uh, and it shared some uh, attributes uh, with the Marxist tradition. I mean, how could it not? Uh, you know, Marx had tremendous influence on everyone, uh, but it also had some substantial differences that I'd be happy to go into, but it's pretty long in detail. Uh, and like you said, Iona, I think that the postmodern theorists really had their heyday up until about the 1990s, uh, you know, particularly during the 1980s. You know, Derrida was a superstar, you know, he sold out uh, campus auditoriums everywhere. You know, Michel Foucault was the most important social scientist in the entire world. Uh, you know, Gayatri Spivak, you know, uh, published a lot of her most important works. Uh, and by the 1990s, you started to see the pushback emerging uh, from various new left philosophers, people like Slavoj Žižek or Alain Badiou, uh, who are highly critical of the ultra-skepticism that many of these thinkers adopted. Uh, now, when it comes to social justice activism, uh, I think it's a lot harder to pin down than either these the- two theoretical pr- traditions, uh, because... What's called social justice activism is really more of a cultural phenomena uh, that has a lot of different attributes, a lot of different groups associated with it, uh, and consequently they draw on a lot of different philosophies uh, to try to justify their kinds of politics. Uh, And as Marion points out in her section of the book, you know, take feminism, for example, usually pointed to as one of the radical feminism, you know, paradigmatic instances of social justice activism. You have liberal feminists, you have radical socialist feminists you have postmodern feminists, absolutely, Uh, you have queer theoretical feminists, you name it, right? Uh, And as anyone who's gone to a conference with any of these people will know, they do not get along. (laughs) In fact, you'll fight very hard pressed to find them saying anything nice about one another. Uh, So when we're talking about social justice activism as a cultural phenomenon, certainly worthwhile looking at the commonalities it has, uh, particularly given, you know, the political context of the 21st century, but we need to be aware that they do not rely on any singular theoretical tradition, um, whether that be Marxism, going back to, you know, the kind of grand meta narrative period of history, uh, or postmodern theoretics, which, as I pointed out, I think had its heyday uh, up through the 1990s. It is now in a kind of slow process of decline.
3: Yeah, and um, I would agree with you, Iona, when you said that Peterson seems to take more issue, like a he misrepresents that it, it, it seems like he has more problems with identity, right? Like groups and identity politics. Um, just, I disagree a little bit with what you say about postmodernism. And I think this is where uh, Peterson Mike made the link, because I don't think all postmodern authors really were apolitical or their. The impact they had was kind of in that vein. I would make. Uh, I was. I did a master's uh, thesis on Foucault, so I would really distinguish between someone like Derrida, which I do believe he's like a bourgeois political guy. Although my co-author Conrad Hamilton will disagree. Uh, but I think like, uh, Foucault, like with all this uh, theorizing, regardless of the problems of his approach, was deeply concerned about politics, right? And uh, about the impact that politics has in organizing society, but also in um, in the way we become who we are, right? So I would say that maybe, as Matt said, like there are deep, like uh, difficult connections to be drawn between all these uh, different figures that Peterson takes issue with. But I do agree with you when uh, you say that it's mostly a mischaracterization of these different traditions that he just uh, basically brings together as if they were single and they were like unified uh, movements and theories.
1: So I mean, it seems to me that Foucault, like, there's a kind of political critique, but it's it's in a in a way, it's sort of an a you know. A political one, by which I mean that, like he, hes interested. He's clearly interested in critiquing various uh, social structures uh, in ways that are going to be of tremendous interest to, to people who do have some kind of political program. But, um, but I think he—he's interested in critiquing them in a way that really resists. Um, being used to support any kind of political program, right? You know, because because uh, uh, because the sense you often get from Foucault is that is that oppression uh, isn't like it's not that like okay, there are certain social structures that are oppressive, and we can fix that by like changing and having new structures. It's that like oppression is just kind of pervasive, and you're just going to sort of rearrange it with the new social structures, and it's it's almost you know, in a way it almost seems like it's, it's as much baked into the firmament of reality for Foucault as it is to Peterson. Um, and actually I think even though I, I mean, I totally agree with, um, Iota, uh, and, and Matt and and you, I think that the, that, you know, Peterson is making, uh, multiple category mistakes with the postmodern neo-Marxism because one, postmodernism and Marxism are incompatible. And two, um, what he's really interested in, which is identity uh, based cultural leftism uh, really has very little to do with either postmodernism or, uh, or Marxism. Uh, in fact, a lot of times what people seem to be uh, talking about, like what when when I've, what when I've made this point to Peterson fans, what they'll say is things like, yeah, but it's like Marxism in the sense that like, you know, people who are very concerned about gay rights, for example, would say that like, you know, straight people are oppressing gay people and see that's like how Marx thinks that, you know, capitalists are oppressive workers, at which point the standard seems to be that anytime you think anybody is being unjustly oppressed by anybody else, you're basically a Marxist, which, uh, you know, I, I think if that if that were what defined Marxism, then Marxism predates the birth of Karl Marx by like all of human history. <laughs> um you know, like like all every all the French revolutionaries would be Marxists. The authors of the Book of Exodus would be Marxists. Spartacus would be a Marxist, especially Spartacus, right? They, uh, but uh, but I actually think there's a much more interesting comparison you could make between uh, Peterson and postmodernism because uh, Peterson actually shares a lot with uh, certain postmodern thinkers. Um, obviously, this is something Matt has explored extensively, but I mean just just to. Just to draw out one of the most obvious points of comparison, um, the Peterson is Peterson is a skeptic about objective truth. Uh, he thinks, um, I mean, granted, this has more to do with pragmatism than postmodernism in terms of where he's getting it, but he, uh, uh, but but he has this view according to which you know truth is ultimately just a kind of usefulness, and you know, and there's no. Uh, it's not, you know, it has nothing to do with correspondence to reality, uh, and and when you you tie that in with his his interest in, in you know, mythological narratives, you know, uh, as as a way of understanding everything, I'm not I'm not saying that, that Peterson is a postmodernist, but I think there are definitely themes in Peterson that at least rhyme with some themes in postmodernism.
2: And so the genealogy they share as well. I mean, one of the things I have to point out is that. Peterson's main theoretical interests include people like Friedrich Nietzsche uh, or Martin Heidegger, uh, and Jacques Derrida wasn't the person who coined the phrase deconstruction uh, of Western epistemology. That was a Heideggerian idea. Mm. Uh, So there's more in common uh, than meets the eye. Uh, And if you start to interrogate below the surface, I think you'd start to recognize that. And one of the things that sometimes frustrates me about Peterson is as an intelligent and uh, often very interesting thinker, uh, had he spent more time actually working through these people uh, he himself might have had more interesting things to say about them than he does at the moment
0: yeah I I've, I've, I feel that Peterson is very bad at going into detail um, <laughs> I, I really I find that even when he's talking about artworks for example when he's analyzing the Little mermaid or some uh, Disney work or something like that um, and he mostly seems to analyze Fairly simplistic tales, and he does it at this allegorical level. It's like every work of art is Pilgrim's Progress for him.
3: <laughs> yeah, and I think it's, but I think it's deliberate. I think he goes into the detail when the details fit what he's what he wants to say. You know, mm. uh, like for example, there's a section in Twelve Rules for Life where he's talking about like. Oh no! But men, as a gender, like as all men, right? Like, uh, do a lot for women, and how is it that women are angry at men, right? And he mentions four people, like he mentions four men as to be representative, you know, as all men. So, as you said, he, I think, I think that's why a lot of people are like us. We take issue with someone like Peterson, right? At some points, he is willing to make these broad generalizations, but when, you know, when you look into the, um, when when people argue against him, then he's willing to give some particular, very specific examples to say, but see, this is what, um, uh, these are the particular, like, uh, events, you know, the specifics of uh, what I'm trying to say. So I think it's just, he uses this kind of, arguments uh, in when it suits, you know, uh, his view world of, uh, view of the world. Yeah.
2: Just kind of riffing off of what Marian said very briefly, because uh, on a comment on uh, another thing that you mentioned, you're talking about somebody like Dave Rubin, right? I don't think Dave Rubin is really all that intellectually curious, uh, despite his posturing. I certainly don't think he has any real capacity uh, or at least attention of looking into any of the subject matters he brings up with a lot of detail. So I don't really expect all that much from him, right? You know, asking him to sit there and give a thorough unpacking of views that he disagrees with is just kind of like asking, you know, a 12-year-old to write a treatise uh, on the history of the world. It just can't be done. But Peterson has demonstrated that he is more than capable of producing good, interesting, empirically rigorous scholarship uh, when he's committed to that. And I personally find like a lot of what he's written quite interesting because I actually kind of like some of that young Heidegger Nietzsche stuff. Uh, I know Ben is probably rolling his eyes right now, but it's true. Uh, Mm -hmm. And the the fact that he's willing to do this in these kind of arenas actually makes me just more disappointed that he's not willing to apply the same standards uh, to people whose work is difficult, uh, but certainly not inaccessible, uh, and that he could actually engage with in good faith uh, successfully if he actually bothered to take the time, which frankly, I very much doubt he's going to do.
0: I wanted to, I'm, I'm going, I'm backtracking a little bit here because we leapt away from this subject and I, I want to go back to it, which is his, um, his use of evolutionary biology. And I, th- I find in particular his idea of a kind of Darwinian notion of truth, I, I, his idea that truth is basically subjective. So truth is whatever is useful to us. Um, I think that is how he ends up defining it in that torturous um three hour <laughs> podcast with Sam Harris on the subject, which i'll I'll link I'll link to everything we mentioned in passing. We'll get linked to in the show notes um, so for anyone who is listening. um there's something very postmodern and even kind of social justice leftist about that view. It's like a a sort of, extreme version or species-level version of standpoint (laughs) theory. Um, And it seems that um, he tries to dress it up as something scientific by describing it as Darwinian, but the idea that this would be in some way Darwinian just makes no sense to me, because why would we have um, evolved to um, to have a view of what is out there which doesn't correspond with the facts. of course we can only perceive a we can only perceive a fraction of the electromagnetic spectrum. There are a lot of things that we are unable um, we can't see things at large large scale things and tiny things. Um, we have very limited perception, but within that limited perception, it's important that what we perceive is reasonably accurate and if you're the kind of person who finds it useful to think that it's true that there's no tiger out there but there is a tiger out there you are going to be lunch so um it it just makes that it makes no sense to me that we would evolve in a way that would um that we would look at our surroundings and whatever happened to be we thought would be useful to us is what we would perceive and believe to be true. That is not a good survival tactic. It's like the kind of Martin Boudry, I think, compares this. He's talking in a slightly different context. He's ha- it's an argument that he's having on letter with um with Peter Bogossian, which I've actually written a, an article about that argument. I will link to both of those in the show notes. But um Martin Peter also makes a very similar argument to Peter makes a similar argument to Peter's sons, which is that um, we can make ourselves believe things voluntarily, and we will tend to make ourselves believe the things that are most pleasing and reassuring to us. And Martin says that a person who did that on a regular basis would not survive. It's like putting on the, the Janta peril-sensitive sunglasses from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Those sunglasses that, that turn opaque and dark whenever danger is near. Um, wearing those sunglasses is not a good survival tactic. Oh,
2: uh, well, I just wanted to talk very briefly about this, and then I'll let Ben take it away because I'm sure that he's much more knowledgeable about uh, the fundamental problems of epistemology than I am. Uh, But the ironic thing is Peterson has often characterized himself as a pragmatist uh, and invoked that rich epistemological tradition, uh, primarily American, although with other contributors. Uh, And one of the things that he doesn't acknowledge is that the most famous pragmatist uh, of the 20th century, certainly the late 20th century, uh, is Richard Rorty. And Richard Rorty is very much an ally uh, of various postmodern theorists, consistently talks about how even the concept of mind, for example is one that was invented around uh, the 16th, 17th century in the work of Descartes. We can gradually do without the concept of mind uh, when we start recognizing how our thoughts are primarily socially determined. Uh, And this is yet another example of the fact that when he references these very big theoretical traditions, there's a surprising lack of specificity uh, and a lack of actual engagement with the controversies within it because anybody who says, you know, I'm an epistemological pragmatist should at least reserve for themselves some responsibility for talking about all the controversies within that and why it is that, on the one hand, they claim to hate postmodernism and everything that's associated with it, uh, and yet at the same time, the primary spokesperson for the philosophical position they're now um, advocating for was heavily associated with that tradition.
1: Yeah, uh, so I, I, listened to, I listened to the... Uh, uh, those that three-hour conversation between Harris and and Peterson, um, that was that was one of my first in-depth exposures to uh, to Peterson, and uh, and I, I think, um, you know, I don't think it's going to be a surprise to anybody on the line that you know that that I I have <laughs> I have uh, very little love for. Uh, uh, for for Sad Harris, but I've never been more sympathetic to him than I have during during that interview uh, because because uh, he just comes off as as a you know as as just a reasonable person trying to explain something very simple to the world's most obstinate undergraduate. Um, you know, which you, you know, like 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 I mean, it could be whether or not you know. Um, having beliefs that, that line up with, uh, the facts is, is always useful to us or not, or useful in some senses, but not in others. Um, you know, I mean, it could be, maybe there's some, you know, there's some truths that we can't handle. It would be like the, uh, total perspective vortex from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, uh, where you're, you're like, uh, dis, um, uh, where, where, where you're totally, um, like pulverized by by your knowledge of you know your insignificance in the in the universe, except for uh, Zaphod Beeblebrox, who's who's perfectly content with his importance. <laughs> um, we, uh, <laughs> but uh, but whether it's useful or not, I don't see what any of that has to do <laughs> with with whether that makes our beliefs true, right? You know uh, the the word the word true has has, has, a, has a very um, you know, uncomplicated, uh, uncomplicated meaning. And if you if you want to use it to mean something else, then you better have come up with a new word for uh, for what we mean uh, for what we mean by true. And, and, and it I it was just excruciating listening to Harris, uh, you know, sort of give all of these examples. Like, okay, but what if you know if there was not sci- There was like a germ warfare lab. Uh, where we were using true you know true scientific theories about how germs work uh, to um, to to develop these this these uh, this, like terrible viruses and then like they got out into the water supply and they killed everybody um, that wouldn't make the that wouldn't make the theories of germs not true right and and Peterson just, will not give an inch on it. Like just, just, just not whatsoever. He just keeps on biting the bullet um, over and over and over again. Uh, and it's, um, and, and it's, it's amazing. And, and it makes me wonder like, uh, like, like if you're, if you're going to be that uh, like, if, if you're just that unwilling to just have a concept of, of objective truth, um, uh, like, like it, it, that puts a lot of the rest of what he says, uh, in question because, cause I don't, you know, like, I think even when I've written critiques of him, you know, or I assume when you guys have, um, like, I assume that he thinks that what he's saying is true in the sense that we all use the word true. But, uh, I think to make that assumption, I sort of have to bracket that conversation because if he's really serious about this, this, um, uh, Truth is usefulness, and there is no, you know, there is no God's eye, you know, truth. Um, then, then I don't, I don't even know if, uh, like, is he asserting things that he thinks objectively line up with the facts, or, or is he, or is he just asserting things that he thinks will, in some sense, be useful to us?
0: Yeah, it's very postmodern. Um, I, I feel it's everything is. Comforting narratives that we tell each other. There is no there out there. There's no external world. It's all yeah, us and, playing and, with language. Uh,
1: and there's a lot of I. I think uh, <laughs> I think Matt might have actually read all of Maps of Median, which which I'm in awe of. Uh, really? I, uh, right, actually. I, I did that two times, the whole way through. Well, thank okay. you for your service. Uh, but uh, I, I, in any case, uh, <laughs> the uh, the parts of Maps of Median that I read. Um, you know, he, seemed, he seems quite explicit about that, right? That he's that, uh, about not, um, about not accepting, uh, that there's, that there's a, uh, that there is this robust distinction between, uh, between the world, uh, just as it is and, in any sort of like, um, you know, meaning or purpose that, that we, that we impose on it, um. And, and it's very, like, it's, it's very rough, like sledding getting through that book or even trying to, trying to figure out what he said if, you know, because, um, you know, sometimes, uh, sometimes I think there's a, there's a temptation to, to charitably interpret him as not, not believing that, uh, but, but he does believe that. And I think you. I think you probably just have to accept that he believes that, uh, to, uh, to, to get through, um, you know, to, to get through the book. But I mean, maybe this just speaks to my own, you know, philosophical biases or, you know, that, that I, I just have, I just have so much trouble taking that, that, that view seriously. I, I think as I was reading maps of meaning, I, I, I just, I just kept on choking, choking on that. Cause I go, oh, well, well, he can't possibly mean that, right? Like there's like, you know, like, 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 could he really be serious about this idea that um, that we can't distinguish between the world as it objectively is and its you know its meaning or importance to us as human beings?
2: I have my own theory about that that I'll just present very briefly. So he actually articulates a kind of genealogy of scientific reason uh, in the book. It's not a particularly well elaborated, but it is there. Uh, and the way that I think he typically understands truth. Is more in the sense of logos, the Greek concepts of truth, uh, where there is this unity uh, of facticity and normativity uh, that persisted through the Christian epoch, right, where knowing how the universe operates means knowing the will of God, which means knowing your place in it, which means knowing the meaning to your life. Uh, and he's deeply concerned about this separation that occurs in modernity. As you know, Ben, you know, via Hume uh, and Kant, I would also argue, uh, most yeah. specifically... Uh, And I think the reason that he's attracted to pragmatism, and this is just me speculating here, uh, is because some iterations of pragmatism suggest that there might be a way of recombining normativity and practicity uh, in a kind of holistic fashion uh, that mends the wound uh, that you see emerging in modernity with the emergence of scientific rationalism. Uh, But that's just my own kind of pet theory on that. I don't know if that's true. Uh, but he's definitely deeply concerned about the fact that the facts cannot lead you to any belief uh, about what you should do in the world uh, or what the meaning of the world is in this more than metaphysical sense, uh, as he once put it. Whatever the hell that means.
1: Oh, just 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 very briefly, one thing I've I've, I've got to say is is that I'm just so enormously happy. I mean, I mean, um, like I, I really like you know what what Marion and Conrad and um, and, and Slavoj. Uh, wrote, you know, for for the book, uh, but I'm just so enormously happy that Matt is part of this because uh, <laughs> uh, because because in my in my experience of of arguing with Jordan Peterson fans, they'll inevitably say, okay, yeah, yeah, but you're just not understanding what he's saying because you haven't. You know, read all of Maps of Meaning. You haven't listened to to every minute of, of his you know twenty hours of of, uh, of lectures on mythology in the Bible. You haven't uh, you know you haven't read you know uh, this this you know this or you haven't listened to that. And of course, it's uh, the goalposts are always being pushed back. But uh, but I'm pretty sure Matt actually has. <laughs> so yes, the Ma-
0: the Matts number. I think he's is- believe he has number 11. <laughs> the number 11's <laughs> everything. The number 11,
2: yes. <laughs> well, The secret can't come out yet, right? We need to, to keep it under wraps for at least another month or two.
0: This will be our secret, our little secret. Um, I do think that Peterson has a point, although I don't agree with him. I'm very much an enthusiast for the Enlightenment. Um, but I can... I think that he feels that there, there is a sent, there is something that we have lost in losing a religious worldview. I think this is the kind of development that, um, or rather, a magical worldview. Let's say because I think this is the kind of development that's also discussed in religion and the decline of magic, um, and it's that that kind of. A sense of looking at things and seeing immediately not just a factual thing out there in the world, a scientific phenomenon or a human phenomenon, but also seeing those things as intrinsically vested with symbolic meaning. So one example that, um, uh, one recent example that someone gave was the line at the at the end of Dr. Faustus of Marlowe's play Dr. Faustus, Faustus looks up and he's his hour is about to be up. His pact with Mephistopheles, um, the, the twenty-three years of of absolute power, wealth, and debauchery that he purchased are running out. He's getting it's getting towards midnight on the final day. He's in the last kind of seconds, and he looks up and he says, see, see where Christ's blood streams in the firmament. And although it's supposedly midnight, so you have to suspend your disbelief a little bit here and imagine he's in Reykjavik or something. But um, he is looking at the sunset, of course. This red streak across the sky, across the horizon, is the sunset, but he sees it immediately as Christ's blood. And that kind of magical view of life um, I think it's true that that is something that we have lost. And I can understand, although I don't share Peterson's nostalgia yeah, for that. I agree. And
2: I think that there are two different ways that we can comport ourselves uh, to what Max Weber called the desacralization of the world. Uh, and I think this is something that Peterson has never necessarily sorted out uh, in his own spiritual life. Because uh, Weber says at the end of his vocation lectures that Either you can face up to the fact that the world is desacralized like a man, uh, uses that express term, which is a gender-loaded term, but I think its point is still emphatic, Uh, by which he means, you know, you are now responsible for inventing the meaning uh, in the world, both by yourself uh, and ultimately in cooperation with others. Or, he says, you can retreat to the churches, uh, which will be there to welcome you with open arms. Uh, And I think that what Peterson is trying to do is not face up to this Devarian dilemma, that we now have to create our own meaning in the world, hopefully collectively, uh, in my uh, aspirations. Um, But he can't accept the idea of just going back to traditionalist religion, uh, which is why he's trying to enact this kind of midway point uh, between these two extremes that I ultimately don't think is sustainable, even if I can sympathize with it, because, of course, we all want meaning in our life, right? Who doesn't want meaning? Now, but I mean, Ben and I have talked a bit about this before, right? I mean... um, and so, Mary and I, obviously, right? I mean, this is one of the fundamental problems that you find with the emergence of modernity. Uh, Adorno, I think, put it very well, right? This sense that as technology increases, you know, we can increasingly do whatever it is that we want. Uh, but the problem with the desacralization of the world uh, and this gap between facticity and normativity uh, is that even though we can do whatever it is that we want increasingly, we have no idea what it is worth doing. Uh, We have to kind of set that for ourselves. Uh, And I personally interpret this as a call to responsibility uh, and more rationalistic thinking uh, to try to sort out new ways of living in the world, sort out new ways of conceiving of and generating meaning uh, in existence, whereas I think for somebody who's got a reactionary bent like Peterson, uh, this is invariably interpreted in a tragic sense of loss. the only way to kind of compensate for that is always by looking for the past, generating this kind of nostalgic attitude towards it, and talking about how the present is radically fallen in relation to the past, when things still were sacred.
0: Mm. Yeah, and the problem with sacredness, of course, is that you're, you're not allowed to blaspheme against it. So if the roles don't, the traditional roles don't suit you, um, then you're trapped so on the one hand, you have kind of meaningless and, and meaninglessness and anomie is a possible problem. But on the other hand, you have this uh, these constraints on your personal freedom, which you might not feel if the, if the traditional roles and the traditional way of life suits you. But if you don't, you'll be yeah, utterly absolutely. Miserable. I mean, one of the things I would
2: say um, is, you know, go ask how many women uh, in many traditional communities felt that they were genuinely equal participants Uh, and sacred rituals associated with the world. Uh, You probably wouldn't find too many of them, and there were a huge number of reasons for that, you know, structural barriers, economic barriers, uh, normative barriers. Uh, And one of the great things about modernity is precisely the opening up of new freedom to criticize those kinds of traditions and structures uh, and establish new and more emancipated forms of life, even if there's a responsibility imposed upon us to have to create meaning uh, within these new spheres that we create,
0: is there anything that we haven't covered that you guys are dying to uh, oh, say? I just to want say? to say
2: I'm really looking forward to Ben's new book uh, about a funnier, more compassionate left. So I was wondering if, as a personal favor to me, you could give me a little preview of what it's all about.
1: Uh, sure. Yes, please do. So uh, basically, the the new book uh, is about. The ways that uh, the left or elements of the left uh, sabotage themselves uh, by by being moralistic in certain kinds of counterproductive ways. Uh, so there's a there's a classic essay uh, by the Marxist uh, social th- uh, theorist um, uh, Mark Fisher from 2013 called "Exit the Vampire Castle," which uh, is something I talk a lot about in there. It's, uh, you know, the depressing thing I always feel about that essay is that it always feels like it could have been written last week. Uh, It's because he sort of starts out by talking about, you know, like recent instances in which, um, uh, you know, Twitter, uh, uh, you know, like people on left-wing Twitter were sort of, you know, canceled for minor infractions and, you know, and and how miserable and dispirited, you know, this kind of... um, this kind of culture is, uh, and and I think that it's it's related to um, to a lot of other trends that, that I see that that disturb me on my side politically. Uh, like just just to give a very small example, um, you know, last summer at the uh, convention of the uh, uh, Democratic Socialists of America, uh, which uh, was was covered on uh, by like Bill O'Reilly on Fox News. Uh, which, you know, of course is a, is a great sign of the resurgence of the left that it wouldn't – you know, he wouldn't have bothered to cover it, you know, uh, two years before because it was a marginal organization. But uh, people uh, – he showed these clips of, uh, of people saying, for example, nobody should clap because, you know, there might be some people with like um, – uh, with obscure sort of uh, auditory issues – uh, who'd, who'd be disturbed by clapping and loud noises? So people should just use ASL applause, which essentially means wiggling your fingers. Um, and uh, because you know, not doing so would uh, would be ableist. Uh, and, and and all all I could you know could think uh, you know of, of course O'Reilly is cherry picking the worst stuff, but uh, is is that. These people who are running this meeting, there's just no thought that's entering into their head about how this is going to read to people who aren't already immersed in this particular kind of left-wing subculture, um, and and there's and I think there's really a tension that you often see uh, between. Um, between a sort of version of the left that I think may have maybe a symptom of the long decades in which, um, you know, in which even serious social democrats like like Bernie Sanders were totally exiled from from real world power, uh, and and so what we had was a kind of um, Chomsky at left, right? Like I really admire Noam Chomsky, but I think that he, but like I think that that sort of generation of leftists really had no conception of actually winning over a majority or wielding power because that was just too unrealistic in the circumstances that they were living in. Um, and, and so, so, so they really sort of had, um, they really sort of hunkered down in this way where at least in effect, if not in theory, uh, their leftism was just kind of a, a moral stance, right? You know, a protest, uh, and there are a lot of habits that are left over from that that I think are really inhibiting people. Uh, as as they you know now that like due to various historical changes you know we actually do uh, have have an opportunity for uh, for real breakthroughs for uh, for left wing social change, and and so I think there's a there's a tendency you know uh, to to view uh, to view the uh, the left less as as some, as a movement that we want to ultimately encompass, you know, hundreds of millions of people to uh, to actually change the world, uh, then as a kind of clubhouse that we want to guard very zealously to see if people are good enough to be part of it, um, and and so I think that a lot of the pra- a lot of these kinds of practices of of canceling people for various minor infractions, uh, and 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 really. Um, and really viewing everything through this kind of prism of, of individual moral commitment and, you know, is this person sufficiently self-effacing about their privilege, you know, to be kind of allowed allowed into the clubhouse uh, really is something that's, that's at odds with um, – well, you know, we quoted Marx earlier in the discussion about uh, – all that you know, uh, money is knee leveler, and all the solidity uh, melted into air. So, just to finish off with one more Marx quote, you know, uh, he famously says in the theses on Feuerbach that uh, you know previous philosophers have only interpreted the world. The point is to change it. And so, if you if you really truly believe that the uh, that the point is to change it, I think that it's it's important to be able to see how we're sabotaging that with these kinds of practices.
2: Yeah, and actually, just to kind of end my little contribution in a similar vein, uh, have you ever watched the YouTuber ContraPoints, Iona?
0: Oh, yes. Um, I have very mixed feelings about ContraPoints, but I recently watched her um, uh, cancel um, her video about, I think it's just called Cancelled. I'll put the link down below, but um, about being cancelled, and I thought that was absolutely uh, superb.
2: Yeah, I'm a big fan of hers. And she's actually talking about being a graduate student, uh, reading Robert Nozick's Anarchy, State, and Utopia. For those who don't know, uh, it's usually considered one of the top five libertarian uh, works of philosophy. And she said all the graduate students uh, really struggled with arguing against what Nozick said. And this wasn't because Nozick's arguments are invincible. They're not. Uh, He more or less just at the opening of the book asserts People have rights, and this includes rights to bodily possession and never provides an argument for it, Uh, but they've never actually engaged with anything that far to the right before, and so they had no idea how to approach it. And one of the things that I think the left needs to Mm -hmm. do to build a coalition of the sort that Ben talks about is make more efforts to try to understand conservatives, their perspectives on the world, why they believe what they believe, uh, and to try to win over converts, and one of the intentions behind this book, when we originally conceived of it, was to do just that, you know, to think about what Jordan Peterson was saying, to acknowledge where we think he has a point, uh, to express gratitude for where he uh, observes, you know, the left is making mistakes, but also to say that there are better solutions than the ones that he's offering uh, throughout his different era. Uh And that these are progressive solutions. They're consistent with the history of, you know, what's best uh, in Western and other civilizations. And we think that leftists should have the confidence to actually put forward these ideas because we think that ultimately they're better and more appealing uh, and will win out in the long run.
3: Yeah, and just to add up to what Matt said, um, I think our effort as you know, uh, readers of Peterson was precisely, or at least uh, I speak for myself here, was to try to understand Why the support, you know? Why is it that there's people that um, kind of believe in what he says and in a more extreme way, why do they kind of uncritically, right, like believe in what he says? And something that I was mentioning to Matt the other day is that um, it's understandable, right? Like uh, we're not trying to dismiss, for example, people that say, well, but Peter's don't help me. Because as Ben started by saying uh, first, right, was, uh, of course, he gives some advice that you should take in, right? Like, try to order your room, right? To keep it at least, like, uh, a little bit clean, etc. right? Like, some of the, his self-help advice is kind of understandable and at a certain point justifiable. But also, as Matt is saying, right, like, uh, what we want to do with a book like this is not only... It's, First, to show that we should argue with with these people, right? But at the same point, understand where is it that they're coming from and who is it that they're talking about? And Sorry, who is it that they are talking to and why is it that what they say is so appealing, right? right? right. And we, like, as you mentioned earlier, was like, well, yes, right? Like like some social justice warriors, in my own point of view, should be criticized, right? Like what, for example, Dijek in the in the introduction says, right, like uh, some forms of PC are uh, new forms of discipline that aren't necessarily uh, the best ways of uh, engaging with some issues in the world today, right? But uh, that being said, that doesn't mean that all of the solutions that Peterson or people that Peterson provide are uh, the best ways to approach the biggest issues in our world today, which is, for example, as we mentioned, the rise of like uh, these postmodern conservatives, as Matt uh, uh, classifies them.
0: Yeah, I have to say that I um, I sometimes hear criticisms of Peterson's fans, um, with, um, in which people caricature them as all of them being on the alt right or neo Nazis or or reactionaries, or misogynists, etc. And I have encountered a lot of very thoughtful people, and definitely not not even right-wing, let alone alt-right people, who are fans of Peterson. He does have appeal on a number of fronts, I would say, and for a number of different reasons, and some of which are very legitimate. Uh, so when I hear that someone is a fan of Peterson's, I don't um i don't yet assume anything about them um i'm interested to know what what it is that they are finding in peterson um what they like about him what they're getting out of him and and why
1: yeah i mean i, th- I think uh, one very clever you know thing about um Zizek's, uh strategy when he had this debate with peterson and uh, the university of toronto uh is is precisely the thing that a lot of people were kind of nonplussed by, which is that he was so nice. Right. And, uh, you know, even though, even though there were a few moments when, you know, he really kind of had him on the ropes and a different kind of debater might have, you know, um, really pressed the advantage, right. Like when he asked Peterson who these, who he was talking about, who these postmodern Marxists were and Peterson couldn't come up with any names. Uh, it, uh, but I, I, I think that, uh, it seems to me that what um, what Zizek's thought was, and you know, is is that he wasn't uh, he wasn't going there to well, as people sometimes say on the internet, you know, destroy, you know, Peterson. You know, that wasn't really his his agenda, right? His agenda was to try to um, try to show Peterson's fans who I think he correctly, you know, identified as, as, you know, a lot of people are just sort of seekers, you know, they're not, you know, they're not like hardened, you know, fascists or anything like this, you know, um, and to try to show, to try to show Peterson's fans that there's a, um, you know, that there's a a version of the left that they would find, you know, that they would find appealing, you know, that there's they that you could be that like uh, you don't have to be, uh, a politically correct school to uh, to disagree with Peterson about a lot of these things uh, you know which is you know which which I, th- I think was very smart although I think a lot of people were just kind of disappointed in that because a lot of people go to debates um, sort of hoping for blood
2: yeah I guess I'll just uh, close by saying you know we've gotten a lot of feedback from many Peterson fans about this book uh, and there certainly are the people who are shall we say more than a little ticked off uh, that it even exists. Uh, Conrad actually, I think, got my favorite comment recently. Uh, he has a Hotmail address, and one of Peterson's fans wrote to him and was like, this goes to show you know how to base the left is. Nobody who's any kind of professional would have a Hotmail address. I'm not going to buy it. No thanks. Uh, like, well, all right. Um, but, you know, we've got a lot of thoughtful comments also by people who appreciate what he's said, but also will point out that, yeah, we always thought there was something a little fishy or a little bit ambiguous about so this whole postmodern neo-Marxism stuff, uh, or you know we've been waiting for somebody to actually try to take his work seriously enough to actually meaningly point out the flaws to it. Uh, and I should say, I think Nathan J. Robinson, uh, Ben mentioned him once, did a really good job of this in his current affairs article. So we really do hope that fans of Peterson or people who are interested in his work will read it uh, with an open eye, uh, and in the same spirit that we wrote it, uh, will write back to us, tell us what we think we did right, tell us what we think we did wrong, Uh, and are open to engaging and dialoguing with us in the future.
0: Yeah, thank you. That seems like a good place to end. Do you have any final thoughts, Ben or Marion?
1: Uh, That sounds like a good way end to me. Yeah, Yeah, to me too.
0: Great. Well, thank you all three of you for coming on the podcast. It's been a lot of fun. And I have read the book and I highly recommend it. I have to say, especially Matt's sections, which are the longest the longest section. So the longest section is my favorite, um, but it was altogether a, a wonderful read and most of it very accessible. Um, I think Conrad's section is really addressed to academics who are very steeped in theory and philosophy. Um, but the rest of it is very accessible and uh, fascinating. And I highly recommend it to both haters and lovers of Peterson and everything in between.
1: Thanks a lot, Iona. Thanks, Iona.
0: Thank you so much. Have a wonderful week, everyone. You've been listening to Two for Tea, the accompanying podcast for Ario Magazine. Ario is a non-partisan political and cultural digital magazine with a universal liberal humanist slant. Edited by Helen Pluckrose, with the assistance of sub editor yours truly. At Ario, we hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria with calm, well reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both Ario and two for T are entirely audience supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, or both on Patreon. Look for Ario A. R-E-O, A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange, and 2 for T. All patrons will get access to free monthly patron-only podcasts and other perks. Plus, by becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. 2 for T is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you are listening on a podcast app, Take a moment to hit that subscriber button, give us a rating, write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. Spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.